Amen. Happy Sabbath, church family. In a few moments, we'll see in the scripture that part of the fruit of walking in the light is singing with happiness. And uh, I thank you for that, that time. Well, there's a lot of good things going on in our church life right now. It's that kind of a moment of the year where there's a lot of great activity. Josh mentioned some of that coming up uh, tomorrow. Uh, not tomorrow, but Monday, I guess, officially, Vacation Bible School. Uh, next Sabbath, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll kind of celebrate that. Uh, we have a, a strawberry feed next Sabbath afternoon. All that information's in the bulletin. Following day, the parking lot sale, and, and before you know it, camp meeting and all these kinds of things will be going on, and so a lot of fun activity going on in our, our church life. Uh, I also just want to say happy anniversary to, to Gil and Penny Messenger. Uh, the 49th anniversary, those two crazy kids just might make it to 50, right? And so uh, congratulations to, uh, to them. Uh, we've also, and a lot of these graduations uh, have happened or are happening this weekend, but just want to celebrate our graduates. Um, this little slip of paper in the bulletin, it's not much, but it's just us trying to, as a church family, say, well done, we're, we're proud of you. Uh, J.J., Daniel, and Vanetta graduating from 8th grade, and David and Jonathan High School, and, and even some college graduates from undergraduate and graduate. So Jordan Couch, Jonathan, Stephanie, just really proud of your hard work and your accomplishments. Uh, well, well done. I also just want to mention Happy Father's Day in reference to tomorrow. And I say that kind of in thought of our spiritual church family. Indeed, thank you to the men of our church. Uh, that are actively uh, representing men of God, men of faith, that our, our whole church family can look to uh, for the good examples. Thank you to all of the men of our church for being spiritual fathers in our church. And, and I also just want to mention thank you for being a praying church. Uh, I know in our bulletin there's quite a number of prayer requests, and I see good things happening in those, but uh, I just want to celebrate the fact that this last week my, my brother-in-law, Robert, uh, was removed from the artificial lung, and uh, it's the first time in six weeks he's not considered in an ICU-type unit, and uh, he is gaining ground on, on the kind of regaining every day, every day gaining ground, and just praise the Lord for that, but still encourage and invite uh, your prayers. I want to pray right away today, um, before we get into the text. Uh, let's just take a moment to pray. Our Father in heaven... Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to us in, in very relevant ways, uh, yet even today. Words that were coined or written so long ago for a particular group of believers in and around Ephesus still speak to us so strongly, and thank you for that. Lord, I want to pray that you give us the ability to uh, spiritually focus, to just be spiritually attentive for a little while while we seek to hear a word from you. There's much around us, there's much inside of us that distract and just want to pray for the gift of being able to, to focus. Uh, Lord, I also want to pray especially today that you bless my language and my words. It just so happens the, the portion of scripture that we're looking at today, Lord, it's just bumping into some, to some big topics. And I just want to pray that you would bless my ability to open up your word and to, and to give Give your word justice. Uh, Lord, more of you and, and less of me, I pray in your name. Amen. A Christian life 
is an ongoing transformational life. Last week we spent our time uh, in the latter section of Ephesians chapter 4. And if you haven't been able to kind of catch this series uh, from this letter to the Ephesians, uh, I just want you to know you can access it on our church website online. Uh, in the bulletin also information on how to kind of connect to a podcast that's an audio of it just to catch up if you should choose. But last week we looked at the latter half of Ephesians chapter 4 and, and there we saw Paul kind of describing for us what the pre-Christ life was like for these believers that were now recipients of Paul's letter. How, how they had come out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Christ. We saw how deeply depraved the culture of that very pagan Greek Roman world from which they stepped out of and were still called to reach back into. And we saw descriptions of how complete transformation had enabled them to step out of that life and become followers of Jesus Christ. We also considered for a moment last Sabbath how on a very practical daily life level, how their life in Jesus, this new life experience, began to look. And Paul kind of illustrated with things like this. He says, no longer are you dishonest, but you now are characterized by being truthful. No longer are you a kind of person that holds on to anger and bitterness, but you are now quick to, re, to seek reconciliation. No longer are you a taker, a, a, a categorized as stealing. No longer are you doing that, but now you are working hard and you are earning and you are giving of your excess. And, and he described how this new experience in Christ is characterized by our language, our words, our edifying words that uplift and encourage and he closed there, not closed, but towards the, yeah, the end of chapter 4, he described this new life in Jesus as being a, a kind life, a, a tender-hearted life, a forgiving life. And the fullness of this description of transformation kind of reached its kind of climax, if you will, not at the end of chapter 4, but the first two verses of chapter 5, which read this way. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Be imitators of God. That's a high bar, isn't it? How could we possibly truly even imitate God? God is the eternal I am. I can't imitate that. God is all-powerful. He's the omnipotent God. We can't imitate God's power. God is the all-knowing, all-knowledge, existing God. The all-knowing God, the omniscient God. We can't even begin to imitate possessing God's knowledge. So in that sense, look, the plain fact is that, that though God has come close, the reality is, and sometimes we lose sight of this, is that God is so other. God is so above. God is so in glory. God is so purely divine that there is no way we can pattern ourselves after God in terms of the God-only attributes. There are things that only belong to God that we can't imitate. But Paul gives us a clue what he means by 
be imitators of God. He's inviting us to be imitators of God in terms of how we relate to one another. The clue is, with what he has in mind, is when he says, walk in love. Living God's love is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. And that's not just nice language that sounds good on a greeting card. No, it really is the center and the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is love. As a follower of Jesus, we are called to love others. Not just others in the spiritual family of God, but just people, others. We are called to love those who don't look like you. We are called to love others who who don't think like you do, who don't frame life in the same way that you might frame it. We're called to love others who don't love in the same way that you love. We're called to love others who who don't express themselves in the way that you express yourselves. We're called to love others who pray differently and, and have different faith and belief than we may have. We're called to love others who maybe don't vote the way that you vote. We're even called to love others who don't take... We are called to love even those who take pride in things that we don't understand. Followers of Jesus are called to love, to kindness, to being tenderhearted, and to seek relationship, not division. Followers of Jesus, we're called to kind of live out what Christ has demonstrated towards us. Paul speaks in this verse about how he loved us, and the demonstration of that love is that he gave himself up as an offering and a sacrifice, as a fragrant aroma to the Lord. That's very Jewish language of Old Testament sacrificial systems. He gave himself up for us. We ought to be willing to give ourselves to others in love. Jesus gave his life as a as a sacrificial offering to God, and it proved to be pleasing to God in the sense that what Jesus did satisfied the cost of sin. And God found that as a fragrant aroma. We are invited to offer up our lives to God and to others as an offering. In a different letter Paul wrote to the Romans, Paul put it this way, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Today, as we move further into Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to kind of see in the Scripture how Paul continues to illuminate what it looks like to to walk wisely in Christ, to walk in love, to walk in light, to walk in Jesus. Verses 3 through 6. But immorality... Or any impurity or greed 
must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Well, that's heavy language, isn't it? Paul, immorality, impurity, and greed. Paul describes elements of their pre-Christ life that, that must be put away. You were once immersed in this kind of living And in Christ, you're stepping away from that. And he's continuing to challenge them. Don't go back to that. Be sure you're putting it away. And to put it away at a level that no longer even mindlessly speak of such things. And what was it that was to be put away? What is he thinking about here that as followers of Christ should be put away? A boundary should be set and that should be no more. Immorality. But there's lots of types of immorality. But Paul hones us in very specifically in his language that he's speaking of sexual immorality. The word for immorality there is porneia. It's the word we derive pornography from. That just lets you know what what realm of immortality that uh, immorality that Paul is speaking of. Porneia, uh, sexual evils. Sensual indulgences outside of the commitment of of marriage. Sensual impurities, perversions of of any description. And and you look at that and you think, well, why does it say greed? And and it's not greed in terms of greed for material things. It's probably more of a description of like the greediness of lust. Desiring with greed another for your own self-gratification. And he continues addressing Even the language of such things should be put away. Filthy and silly or coarse jesting. That needs to stop. These are not things that are to be taken lightly. They're not things to to joke about. In, In today's language, Paul would say, you needed to step out of that life and don't even utter dirty jokes that kind of reference that life. Crude and rude and, and vulgar talk that, that degrades God's proper gift of sexuality. All that needs to stop, Paul says. Don't even be entertained by that anymore. Likely what Paul is, is kind of getting at here, what, what's in this council of saying, don't even, don't even really speak of it any longer, is the reality that thinking on and talking about such things starts us on the road to do them. Have you ever heard the saying, he protests too much? Sometimes the things that we're occupied on, the things that we're most agitated by, the things that we seem to want to speak about the most, it's because we are drawn to them. Or maybe we're already immersed in it. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Because the very language of it is putting one little toe back into that world that you've stepped out of in Christ. Today's world is much more visual in nature 
than Paul's world. I would think that if Paul was to write some kind of counsel to reflect today's world, he might say, don't even let your eyes gaze upon the screens that portray immorality. Don't even let your ears hear the vulgarity of language that celebrates and makes light of immorality. Listen, in order to better understand just how radical this is, but immorality and purity and greed of the flesh should not even be spoken of to understand how radical nature of what God is saying through Paul, we must remember what kind of societies these Gentile converts had just stepped away from and what culture they were still very much surrounded by and what culture that they were actually called to, to kind of reach out to. The ancient Greco-Roman Gentile world, they regarded sexual immorality so lightly that it was considered really of no wrong at all. The sexual ethic, as it were, was corrupted. One of the, the Greek philosophies that infused so much of that society is they believed in a total separation between physical body and spiritual soul. And that separation was so complete that it did not matter what you did with your body. What you did with your body had no bearing on your soul whatsoever. So have at it. Do whatever you want with your body. It doesn't matter because they're so separate. And it was true then as it's still true today. It was a challenge to live a God-honoring pure life in a culture that celebrated this promiscuity and sensual immorality. I mean, for example, in Greek history, and this isn't... Christian Greek, this is just Greek documents in history. A man by the name of Solon, who was a statesman from Athens, he, he established temple prostitution. He legitimized temple prostitution. Most of those who were the prostituted ones were typically both young adolescent girls and boys by the hundreds. He built temple brothels and he monetized the system. So that he could collect the monies to build the temples to the goddess of, of love, Aphrodite. And sadly, the, the ruins of those temples, sadly, today are looked at as, as symbols of sexual liberation instead of artifacts of sex trafficking. Adulterous relationships. Men engaging with their slaves, both male, female, incest, prostitution that was temple or otherwise. or It was just simply part of absolutely everyday, normal life culture. In fact, in the, in the context of kind of this widespread endorsement of this highly centralized society, a, a man by the name of Cicero, Cicero, a Roman statesman, a lawyer, a philosopher, first century B.C., just before the time of Christ. We have a, a speech that he gave, and he presented this speech on April 4th, 56 B.C. And in this speech, he's defending a man by the name of Rufus, who had been charged with crimes against Rome, 
I don't know the nature of all those crimes. I don't have the full context of all of this. But we have this speech, and, and, and there's a little portion of this speech where it just reflects the passivity on this whole idea of the sexual immorality. In this speech, April 4th, 56 B.C., this man said this, If there is anyone who thinks that young men should be absolutely forbidden the love of prostitutes, he is extreme. When indeed was this not done? When did anyone ever find fault with this? When was such permission ever denied? Just the language of what's the problem? It's never been a problem. Why should it be a problem with this situation? The immorality was so prevalent, it was difficult for them to even recognize the sin in it. In that world, the Christian message came through. And said those things ought not be. One of the radical elements of the Christian faith was the, was the introduction of the idea of chastity into this society. That, that all of these, that, that sexuality that God had granted belonged only in the relationship of committed marriage. Chastity. Christianity brought about a, a really a moral miracle that began to, to elevate society, began to elevate the, the vulnerable, the women and the men, to be deserving of dignity and respect. Paul's voice was a, a leading reformation voice of sexual ethics. Paul offers a reason for this counsel. And he offers a substitution, as it were. In other words, Paul doesn't just say, just don't do that, but just kind of stand here. No, don't do that and do this instead. But rather, and there's a reason that it's far better to, to not be there, but to rather stand here. To call away from engaging and being entertained by immorality. The reason to reject the immorality is because those who choose and pursue a life of immorality, impurity, of, of, of lustful greed, they're worshiping the God of self and will have no place in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now look, this isn't describing somebody who makes a terrible judgment and, and falls into a mistake that says, that's not the life I want to lead, but oh, I fell. He's talking about the person that says, no, this is what I choose. I am choosing this life. And he says that life will not have no place in the kingdom of Christ and God. God's wrath burns against sin. And he will not allow its destructiveness to continue forever. So Paul says, look, if the immoral path leads to lostness, a follower of Jesus should rather focus their thoughts and their words on giving thanks to God. But rather, turn your thoughts to God. Listen, in many ways, we're living in a renewal of those days. In many ways, we're living in a time and place where the ancient permissiveness of, of sensual immorality has reemerged. And as followers of Jesus, it is not easy to live above it in this world. I just want you to know that the God who is for you is greater than the powers that are against you. Choose Jesus, invite His transforming grace into your life, and 
Let him do the good work in you. One tool that is offered to us to to help us kind of filter how to live a life that is walking wisely, walking in the light, walking in Christ, is found in a letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Philippi. He kind of offered this tool, if you will. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good reputation, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Sometimes we don't like verses like this because we feel like, boy, if if I really filtered my choices through a verse like that, I'm going to lose a lot. I just want you to remember that in Psalms 84, the Bible tells us that no good thing does God withhold from those who walk with Him. Paul continues, verse 7 to 10, Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Followers of Jesus are light, not darkness. Paul is not saying that they used to live in darkness, but now they're living in light. That's true. They once were living their life surrounded by darkness and now they're living their life in the light of Jesus. That's true, but that's not what he wrote here. Paul has written that you were once darkness. Not just living in it, you were darkness. And now you are light. Paul is saying that they were once darkness itself and now they are light. See, the reception of Jesus as your Savior and Lord and the receiving of the, the, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, it's not just an improvement of the old life. It's actually an entire new life experience. You were once this. You're not that anymore. You are now something entirely different. And it's dramatically displayed the difference between darkness and light. And the fruitage of this new life in Christ is goodness, righteousness, truth. Paul is letting us know that that we are light and and therefore we should walk that way. That's our identity now. We are children of light. Therefore, walk that way. Live your life in that reality. In the same way that a child deserves to please his parents, or a a child desires to please his parents, so we should strive to, to learn what is pleasing to our God. That last little phrase, learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Dedicate yourself to discover what would the Lord have for me. I want to walk as a child of light. He is my God. I am His child. I walk in the light. How do I do that, Lord? Help me to learn and to step my direction. Paul continues to develop his teaching, verses 11 to 14. He says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead... Even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become 
visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Again, Paul is appealing and encouraging. He's appealing with earnest love, knowing that that the temptations of the flesh are still very much present in the world in which they live. But he's saying, don't do that. Don't engage in that immorality. It, It bears no good fruit. In fact, he says, conduct yourself in such a way that as a child of light, that your life exposes darkness for what it is. Reminds me of what Jesus says. He goes, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works that bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. Someone said the best way to rid our lives of darkness is to drag what is dark in our lives into the light. Because things that become visible when they are exposed by the light Everything that becomes visible becomes light. You've heard it said that Jesus is the light of the world. And we are invited into living lives that reflect His light as children of light. The best way to fight against the darkness of this world is to drag evil into the light. I just want to offer a a very important word of caution. When it says but instead even expose them. Let your light so shine that darkness is exposed to the light. Exposing what is dark in others' lives is not best done by condemning. The best way to expose darkness is to walk in love. Love illuminates Jesus. And darkness becomes evident. As I was thinking about light and how light exposes darkness, it kind of occurred to me, this little analogy. Here's a a man, looks like a nice guy. His head's kind of placed into this certain little apparatus. He's at a dermatologist's office. And dermatologists, they'll, they'll use a certain type of light to reveal the sun's damage on and under the skin that, that we can't readily just see. And so you look at this man and you think, well, he's got a nice complexion. Looks like he's doing okay. But then the dermatologist will turn on the light and exposes the damage of the sun. The image on the right is when that light is switched on and it reveals the damage from the sun. Listen, I personally don't ever really want to do that because that's kind of horrifying to me. I don't think I would recover from that. The damage caused by living in this world is revealed by light. And light is best revealed through love. The challenge is, is in this kind of a scenario, this light is very limited. It's only revealing. It doesn't heal. But a dermatologist can shut that light off. And now, 
having known where the damage is, they, they can pull out a different light. It's a kind of a laser light. And, and they can actually begin to treat the areas that have been damaged and at least to some degree begin to restore some of the damage. And it can make quite a bit of difference. From Light can heal. Listen, bringing our lives into the illumination of Jesus, it both reveals darkness in our own lives, it can reveal darkness in the world around us, and it can bring healing into that darkness. Paul then quoted in, in 11 to 14 a, a beautiful little, little phrase, and we don't know its source. It's like he says, well, for this reason it says, like, well, everybody knows where this is from, but we don't know where it came from. In other words, this isn't a, a Bible verse from the Old Testament. He says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Becoming a follower of Jesus, I love this, it, in my mind, it's probably a song that was sung. Some have suggested it's a baptismal hymn that they would embrace. But the image is beautiful that becoming a follower of Jesus is, is likened to awaking from a sleep, rising from the dead, and living renewed, basking in the shining love of Jesus. Paul now continues to drive home really the same loving message, but he begins to shift his language from that of kind of light and darkness to wise and foolish. He says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul says, be careful how you walk. Walk wisely. We readily find ourselves being very careful being very purposeful and intentional about things that are important to us. We make time for what matters to us. When we highly value something, we, we recognize what competes against it and, and we actively push it back and set some boundaries. When we really hold something as important, we find ourselves learning and seeking better understanding of it. A very simple way of illustrating that is, let's say that you became very passionate about some recreational hobby, some sport. My mind kind of went to the idea of kind of open water kayaking. If you decided, I love this, it's a big deal to me, and I value this very, very much, you'll do it on purpose. You'll make time. You'll push out things that compete for the time and make sure you have time to do it. When you say, I really am, I'm serious about this, I just, I love it so much, it's important to me, you'll begin to recognize the things that are competing against it, and you'll say, nope, I've got to push that back and set a boundary. And when you're really into it, you say, yeah, this is just a big deal for me, you'll find yourself going online and looking at forums and, and learning and growing and your understanding on where I can go and the equipment that will improve my experience and, and how to be better skilled at it. You'll take the time to learn how to do it to the best of your ability. Church family, how much do you care about your Christian walk? Do you hold your Christian walk, your daily life as a, as a child of the light, your daily life as a follower of Jesus, do you hold that in high, high value? You should, because that would be a very wise thing to do. We should use our time wisely and understanding what the will of the Lord is and, and seeking His help to walk in it. 
we should push back against that which competes against our Christian walk and say, nope, I'm pushing that away and I'm setting a boundary. It's interfering with what I really value. Perhaps what Paul is stating here is that the Christian life is wise and it must be lived on purpose with an intentional focused heart. Be careful how you walk and seek to understand what the Lord's will is. Last few verses that we'll look at today bump into another interesting area of life. And do not get drunk with wine. For that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Here in his letter, in in the very previous verse the the thing he just finished pinning in verse 17 Paul has just called upon the reader to not be foolish by failing to seek the will of the Lord and how to walk as a wise child to walk in the light in other words Paul suggested that it is wise to seek to understand what the will of the Lord is and here in these verses he gives two commands that are related to kind of understanding how to live out God's will And these are two commands offered as as seemingly very relevant examples of walking wisely that he felt like these are are things that would be relevant to my reader. And the first is a negative command. Do not get drunk with wine. But the next is a positive command. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about that first command for a moment. Do not get drunk with wine for it leads to dissipation Another word for dissipation in some translations is it leads to debauchery, to immorality. Pagan worship in this Greco-Roman world often include drunkenness. We already kind of established moments ago that, that, that sexual immorality was often just a feature of pagan temple worship. We also know from history that, that drunkenness was part of that pagan temple worship. Drinking in excess and becoming intoxicated, becoming drunk was equated, listen to this, was equated with being filled with the gods or the goddesses that they were worshipped. There's a reason alcohol sometimes is called spirits. It was believed that there in this festival, this worship setting, becoming intoxicated was I am being filled with the spirit of that God or goddess that they were worshiping. And in the state of drunkenness, the pagan worshiper would find themselves readily engaging in the practices characterized by dissipation, debauchery. The the word used here, dissipation, it's the same word that Jesus employed talking about the prodigal son's wild living. Paul associated drunkenness with walking foolishly outside of God's will. So one might expect Paul's next counsel to be abstain then from alcohol. But in fact, he suggests the better side of wisdom is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Once again, the counsel of Scripture in Paul is not, it's not just simply saying, just don't do that anymore and just kind of stand in the middle. It's saying, don't do that and do something that is far wiser. And in this instance, it's saying, don't get drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not the spirits of those false gods, but the spirit of the true God. Listen, this is not today a sermon on whether or not an Adventist Christian should fully abstain from alcohol or, or consume alcohol with extreme carefulness and, and never getting drunk. It's not today's topic. But I will say this, the Adventist church, listen, myself, the Adventist church, we recognize that, that in the Bible there, there is Scripture that indicates that, that if you're going to consume alcohol, be extremely careful. There is a consistent warning against becoming drunk. However, with the total content of the Bible in view, there's, there's lots of content of the Scripture that just say, don't do that at all. And with the total content of the Bible in view, and with just social issues at play, the Adventist church holds that the better side of wisdom, representing God's will, is to just abstain from alcohol altogether. I personally believe that is a wise and a solid stance to take in this world that we live in. But sticking just with the immediate context of this letter that Paul has written, that's our study source for this sermon series. Let me just say this. Walking in the light is associated with walking wisely, which is associated with not getting drunk on wine, soberness. Walking in darkness is associated with walking foolishly, which is associated with drunkenness. It stands to reason that any consumption of alcohol is never a move towards soberness. Consuming alcohol is always a move towards drunkenness. And even if you never get too drunk, consuming alcohol is always a move in that direction. It's not a move towards what Paul would describe as wise and walking in the light. It's a risky move, in Paul's words, that is unwise and foolish. Paul says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, and understand what the will of the Lord is. On the positive side, Paul has written this, but be filled with the Spirit. The world in which the Christians in and around Ephesus lived who did not follow Jesus, they, they found their happiness with wine and immoral pleasures, but those who chose to align their lives with Jesus found their happiness in being filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with, with wine and immorality that led to debauchery, to dissipation. Conversely, according to the flow of Paul's letter, being filled with the Holy Spirit also produced its fruit. But these were good fruits. The first and second are kind of so related. They're different, but they're related. And it was this. The fruit of being filled with the Spirit is, is speaking. You give voice and, to psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs and you make melody with your heart to the Lord. It seems that when they would gather together for worship and they were expressing the infilling of the Holy Spirit, they sang together. 
I don't know what those songs were, but clearly there's a variety of music. There was hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. And bottom line is this. They were happy Christians and happy people find themselves singing about the source of their happiness. Also flowing from being filled with the Spirit was giving thanks for all things in the name of Jesus Christ and to the Father God. They were happy, Spirit-filled Christians and just ready to praise God with praises and, and gratitude. They were not murmuring, complaining, and whining Christians. They were filled with the Spirit and they lifted their praises and their thanksgivings to God. And the final thing that flowed from being filled with the Spirit was this. They began to honor and respect one another, to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We'll, we'll talk more about that in the next kind of section of this series. But for right now, they began to see each other not in terms of their social status in a very caste system type society. They began to see each other not by their professions or their, their economics. They began to view each other in light of Jesus. And therefore, because they all mutually reverence Christ, they began to hold one another in high respect and regard and were willing to be subject to one another in their reverence to the light of the world. I'll close with this one thought and we'll pray. A few years ago, I found myself watching a, a series of sermons preached by a very well-regarded Baptist preacher, Charles Stanley. It was a series of sermons and, and I enjoyed it. I was edified by it. Uh, I learned, I grew. I didn't agree with everything that was said, but it was a very enriching experience. But one thing I noticed and I really appreciated was this, is each sermon he would close with a prayer. And his ministry was not just kind of a pulpit right here, right now. It was kind of a global uh, access type ministry. He has a wide and broad audience. And, and in his prayer, he would invite listeners to choose Jesus for the first time. And he would say something like this. He would say, Lord, if there's anyone here today who has not accepted you as their Savior and Lord, please help them to make the wise decision." to do so right now. I agree with Charles Stanley on that point. I agree with the Apostle Paul. Though the world may see it as foolish, according to the Word of God, it is wise to walk with Jesus. Our Father in Heaven, bless these words. You've promised that when Your Word goes forth, it will not return empty, having not accomplished its purpose. Lord, whatever you sought to accomplish with these words, I pray that they'd bear fruit in our lives and help us, Jesus, to walk as children of the light, to walk in love, to walk wisely, to walk in you. In your name we pray. Amen.